Welcome back to Texas Tech Health Check from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. I'm your host, Melissa Whitfield. We want you to get healthy and stay healthy with help from evidence-based advice from our physicians, healthcare providers, and researchers. We process the outside world with our senses, but for some, their senses do not function as they should because of a condition called sensory processing disorder. People with sensory processing disorder, also known as SPD, have a hard time receiving and responding to information that comes in from their senses. Here to explain SPD are Dr. Cindy Tionko, occupational therapist and assistant professor in the School of Health Professions, and Carolyn Perry, speech-language pathologist, assistant professor, and director of clinical education in the Department of Speech, Language, and Hearing Sciences. They explain what it's like for people with SPD, especially young children, and what we can do to help loved ones with SPD. Welcome to Texas Tech Health Check. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and what you do here at the Health Sciences Center? Well, hi, I'm Cindy Tionko. I'm an assistant professor in rehabilitation sciences in the entry-level occupational therapy doctorate program here. My clinical practice and what I teach uh, has to do a lot with working with children. So, Hi, my name is Carolyn Perry. I'm in the speech-language pathology program at Texas Tech Health Sciences Center and the School of Health Professions also. I'm the director of clinical education for this SLP program and have a background working in hospitals and other medical type settings, mostly with adults, but I have also worked with individuals across the entire lifespan. But now you've you've got some pediatric experience, Carolyn. A little bit. Well again, welcome to our podcast. Can you tell us what is sensory processing disorder and how many people are affected? Okay, well, actually, I tried to look up numbers a little bit, and the range is kind of high. Some of the more recent literature says between 5 and 15% of children may have sensory processing disorder. Basically, that's when an individual has differences in the way that they input and respond to sensory input. So when you think about what sensory input is, you know, you oftentimes you first think about your five senses that you learned about in kindergarten, right? Vision and hearing and taste and smell and touch. Research into sensory processing have actually discovered, really talked about three three additional senses. So there's a sense of proprioception, which is knowing where your joints are in space, right? Being able to feel where your muscles are. If you close your eyes and someone positions your left arm one way, you can position your right arm that same way without looking because your your brain knows where your muscles are, right? Where your body parts are. There's another type of sensory processing, that of the vestibular system, right? Why some people get sick on roller coasters and some people love them, where your head is in space, right? Where your body is in space. And then kind of the newest sense that we've really started 
um, looking into is that of interoception. So the signals that your inside sends to your brain. How do you know you're hungry? Well, you get signals from the inside. How do you know you need to use the restroom? Things along those lines. So those are those are the sensory systems that take information in from your world or inside your body and send them up to your brain so that your brain can have a response. And so generally, right, you you're driving, you hear a fire truck, right, through that sense. You look with your eyes to see where it is, and you have a motor response to get out of the way so the fire truck can go where it needs to go, right? That's what sensory processing is. So sensory processing disorder is when some of that breaks down and the response is too much or too little. There's, you know, smell smoke, see flames, hear the fire drill, and don't do anything. I mean, that's obviously a very extreme example. But a lot of times what we see in children, um, especially is over-responsiveness, for example, to things like touch. So actually my own daughter is just now at 11 years old wearing jeans with seams that she can feel because it just sent so much information to her brain that she was so uncomfortable that she couldn't do the things that she wanted to do because that was just so much information in her brain. So so much coming in and her response was get it off, get it off, get it off, get it off instead of being able to habituate or, or understand what was going on. So the tactile system, the touch system is one that we see a lot. Actually, auditory responsiveness is another one. You, you may have seen a child out in the community with their hands over their ears and you think, it's not that loud out here. Well, maybe, and that's another topic probably, Carolyn, maybe it's because adults, right, we start losing our hearing, but um, <laughs> it could be more that that it's just it's painful. I actually heard or saw on YouTube. Sorry, my references aren't great, but a woman who actually was autistic talking about how loud sounds hurt her and, and just physically hurt. And so it's that get the sensation in, and whereas typically you have a response to to. Decide what you need to do about that input and do it. When you have sensory processing disorder, your response is too much or too little and then gets in the way of the things that you need and want to do in your life. Well, and the thing that I would add on to that, Cindy, is so about, depends on the year, but between 6 and 7% of the population have some type of a communication disorder, mm-hmm. which is what mm-hmm. we work with as speech-language pathologists. And of that 6 or 7 po- percent of the population, I'm going to have to say anecdotally, I don't have a number to put there, but a large portion of our patients within that six or seven percent have some type of a sensory processing disorder. It is very common for our kiddos in our clinic to, they can't wear socks with the seams on it. They can't wear a shirt with the tag in the back. If there's a loud sound, they cover their ears and can't move. Some of them tactile, you were talking about some of the tactiles, Mm -hmm. you know, out on the body. We have a a person in our clinic who primarily specializes in individuals with feeding or food selectivity problems because they can't handle different textures. They'll only eat mushy things or they'll only eat chicken nuggets from X place with the breading peeled off and, you know, and and you've got to learn how to be able to eat more than just that one thing, right? And it's not that it's a swallowing disorder 
when it goes through the throat and to the stomach, that part's fine. It's just they can't handle that sensation of that exact, you know, consistency in their mouth without just like freaking out. Mm-hmm. And so it hurts or it's, it hurts or, it, or it's just overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've heard one of my cl- uh, colleagues talk about an individual with autism who says, you know, in, in, in a conversation with them, they're like, I can look at you or I can listen to you, but I can't do both. Which do you want me to do? Because, you know, sometimes individuals with autism, you know, don't make very good eye contact. And it's like, so uh, you pick which one you want me to do. I'll stare at you all day long, but whoosh, nothing is getting through. Yeah, and Carolyn mentioned the autism population. Sensory processing differences and and, and a hard time with sensory processing is one of the diagnostic criteria for autism spectrum disorder. It it can also be included in diagnostic criteria for some other, you know, ADHD, anxiety, sometimes have that sensory processing differences associated with it. Briefly, without getting too deep into it, sensory processing disorder is not a technically billable, identifiable disorder. There's a, a book, The Diagnostic and Statistical, Statistical Manual, um, and it's on the fifth edition, fifth. Um, that basically defines disorders, right, so that every the medical community can be on the same page. And sensory processing disorder was up for, for addition, and there was a lot of debate, and it just basically didn't barely didn't make the cut. And so that can that can be part of the problem if somebody recognizes that they or you know oftentimes children uh, that they that they interact with are having a really hard time with sensory processing because it's hard to say this is a diagnosis when the the medical community at large may not recognize it as a diagnosis but do recognize that it's part of different diagnoses. And and that doesn't mean that if somebody has differences in sensory processing disorder that they have autism or that they have something else. It is pretty universally recognized. We all have sensory systems. And we all have sensory quirks. Yes. Mm -hmm, Right? Some of us, to pay attention, have to chew gum, right? Or or you... And it varies throughout the day within mm -hmm. the same individual, too. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, yeah, if, I can't stand to hear people eat. Huh? Uh, yeah, gum smacking drives me nuts. Yeah, yeah. So, so we so, all have I our mean, sensory quirks. Sensory processing disorder is when those sensory differences are so much that you can't that that participating can't function and live in, really live hard. your life. Yeah. I can live with it, but it's just it's just not your favorite. Really hard. But you're also an adult, and that's one of the things. You know, one of the things that you know, in kind of preparing to talk to you today, kind of thinking about is it more common with children or adults? We tend to recognize it more in children, and a lot of that is because adults generally figure out ways to adapt to it, and there's a lot more socially appropriate ways <laughs> to get away from situations that are bothering your sensory system as an adult. You can, you can say, oh, it was great seeing y'all for lunch. I need to go take care of some things before my one o'clock meeting, right? If that chewing is just getting too <laughs> loud for you, there's socially acceptable ways for you to leave. But for a six-year-old in first grade in the cafeteria, they say, if, number one, they probably don't have the language well, to say exactly. what's going on. They might not have the language to verbalize in a, a socially acceptable manner. They might not be able to connect the cause and effect 
that particular thing is making me freak out. You know, it, you know, it takes some time and, and sometimes some outside assistance to kind of figure out what is bothering me so badly. <clears throat> so that's mm-hmm. part of what we do. But, yeah, helping them recognize those things that are triggers and then coming up with ways to manage it and helping navigate their emotional regulation so that they don't just flip out and then the rest of the day is just trash, you know. So if adults can navigate it, is this something that we're basically born with or is this something that comes on over time as children? So actually, there's still lots of research to be done, but you can oftentimes look back at a child and see how they how they had sensory processing differences, even from birth. We were talking about um, infants who were born too early in the neonatal intensive care unit, and they have exposure to loud noises and lights and all sorts of, you know, being fed by mouth, all sorts of things that happen before developmentally they're ready. And not all the time, but a lot of times those children do have differences in the way that they process sensory information. And so it's it's pretty common, you know, that f- 5 to 15, I saw as much as 20% of children. And I think that the, the conclusion is still out as to whether it's something that you grow out of or something that you figure out how to deal with. Don't know that we've 100% discovered what that is. Or some happy medium of both. Or some happy medium of both. And when we do have a lot of individuals who are born with exposures to various drugs or alcohol, that can also interfere with how your neurological system develops and how well you can compensate. And so, you know, with the rise of, of some of those kind of issues, you also see more frequently individuals with with that kind of exposure having difficulty with sensory processing as well as the cognitive skills to kind of manage it and regulate it or the language skills to again navigate using words writing gestures anything just to kind of say whoo I need a break yeah. you know yeah I, I don't know I'm not aware of anything outside of like another neurological, like something like a stroke or something. I'm not aware of somebody developing as an adult a sensory processing disorder. Generally, it's something that you see first in in childhood. It's not an, a newly something yeah, that you can develop later. later no, on. It's, it's more developmental in nature. Mm-hmm. Well, how is it diagnosed, and how would parents get treatment for their children? So, you know, if you notice that there are that that your child's sensory just there are a lot of differences, you know, kind of anecdotally reading on blogs, you know, I didn't realize something was going on until my kid went to preschool and I realized how different, right? Things along those lines. If you feel like, you know, uh, it can be really hard on caregivers, right? Getting, getting dressed (laughs) with my younger one with a sensory processing disorder was a big deal until we figured out some ways that we could work around it, right? Some ways that we could do that. So if that's something that's happening in, in your family, one of the first things you can do is talk to your pediatrician. Although it's not a coded diagnosis, most pediatricians in, in our community for sure are aware of it and aware that is specifically my profession, occupational therapy, has some tools to, to help 
identify which sensory systems are, are really kind of involved, see if there's a pattern to those, and then some ways to intervene with that. So talk to a pediatrician. If, it's, if your child's in school and they're noticing it in school, you can also talk to the school, and they have occupational therapists as well in the school districts that can help kind of navigate. Is this something that OT would work with or not? Particularly if it's interfering with their ability to be successful in the general ed curriculum. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's part of what public policies and the public schools mm-hmm. are supposed to do is help provide a free and appropriate education, particularly if there is someone who has some kind of a special, you know, need like that. Mm-hmm. And you were also talking about how, how you might know if there might be a problem too. Like with the kids that have like the food selectivity disorder difficulties, you know, if they're only going to eat one kind of food, that that's kind of a red flag. That's not typical, right? And so, again, as Cindy talked about, it would be a good idea to have a conversation with your pediatrician and let them know about your concerns and occupational therapists can help with with that area as well as speech language pathologists who have done some additional training to specialize in that area can also be someone and if you get a real good when they're working together collaboratively because that's what we like we do we collaborative love that. practice we love that yep is the child ever too young to go see a therapist no The types of things you can do are a little bit different. Mm -hmm. You know, if they're infants, they're not really going to be following a lot of directions. You know, at that point, it's you modifying the environment or the things that they're presented and the adults. So I worked in the neonatal intensive care unit for a long time. And I can't tell you how many times people were like, what's a speech therapist going to do with a kid, a baby in the NICU? And I was like, well, a lot, actually. (laughs) So... It's more about educating the family members or the caregivers on what signs the baby is giving with their body language. And, you know, like when the kid's like holding their hands straight out and with their fingers splayed right in your face, that's not them going, hey, what's up? It's them saying, ooh, that is so much stuff. Back off. I talk to the hand, basically. And, you know, too much stimulation, helping parents understand if you're rocking and talking and it's really bright out, maybe you need to modify the environment to see if that child can kind of get their sensory system back in order to be able to open their eyes and at least visually contact and communicate. And those are some of those pre-communication behaviors that support interaction, parent-child bonding and and behaviors that way. So yeah, there's a whole lot you can do with babies. It just looks a lot different than what you might see once they get a little bit older. Yeah. But kind of building off of that, you know, one of the one of the the main types of intervention for sensory processing disorder is that caregiver communication and caregiver education um, as really as they, st- they start younger, which continues on. And as the child is start to, is able to start being able to identify what's going on with their body and what they need, there are some different programs that therapists can be trained in 
that help the child identify whether they're feeling, you know, how their sensory system is feeling, and then they experiment with different different tools, um, you know, such as chewing gum or movement or jumping or or different ways to get a different sort of sensory input in that can help them to be able to participate in the things that they want to do. And so, you know, it kind of starts with helping parents to make those modifications, right, and then kind of moves to helping to teach the child different ways that that they can, in a socially appropriate way, communicate their needs and also meet their sensory needs. And so some of the things, you know, uh, again, self-advocacy is awesome. So we do try and help transfer that responsibility to the individual because, you know, hopefully most parents are trying to raise their children to be self-sufficient adults. So trying to help train caregivers and then train or educate our, our clients to be able to advocate for themselves and what they need. Well, what can caregivers <clears throat> or the rest of us do for loved ones with Mm-hmm. sensory processing disorder. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that one thing you can do, talk to your pediatrician and get an, an occupational therapy, especially if you're at the beginning of it, an occupational therapy um, referral where we can use, we have some some tools, some assessment tools that we use to help identify those patterns. And then we can actually help a, a term that's kind of going out of, of favor, is, uh, but it's called a sensory diet. So kind of looking at what are the child's patterns throughout the days and then what are things that can be done? Okay, lunchtime is really hard because of all the food textures and the noise. So before they go to lunch, let's do some movement and do some wall push-ups, and they can wear headphones to lunch, um, and then we're going to make sure they sit at the end of the table, right? And so because lunch is really hard. And then, you know, at the end of the day, they've held it together all afternoon. They need to go to the park for five minutes to run and swing before we try to sit down and have dinner. And so kind of the occupational therapist is trained to kind of look for those patterns and then provide suggestions working with the family and the child to figure out what works best for that child. There's also another kind of therapy called sensory integration therapy. Those are therapists with another level of training. They have a lot of advanced training, use special equipment. Where, and basically, they it's a child-led therapy where they try to get the child to do challenging things so that they develop adaptive responses and learn how to how to do different things. So there's kind of different levels. There are there are books that uh, that your occupational therapist or pediatrician can refer you to that kind of give some okay if you see this you might try this or this. In a lot of ways it's kind of seems like common sense stuff, but it's but the occupational therapy therapist or this or the other trained therapists are able to look for those patterns, kind of have in their toolbox things that usually work, and then can work with the family to help figure out what works best for that that individual. Well, the one other group that we hadn't really touched on yet, and Cindy, pop in and support correct as, as necessary, individuals with hearing loss, whether they were born with it or they acquire it later in life, are, are individuals that by the nature of the fact that they have some type of hearing loss, have a sensory processing disorder because there's not enough hearing or whatever that interferes with their ability to engage in the world, right? And so thinking of, and I know we've talked a lot about little kids, so I'm going to give the adults a little bit of some love here for just a second. 
first off, noise-induced hearing loss is one of the number one causes of hearing loss in individuals 25 and up now. We listen to a lot of loud music on our, our phones and in our cars and, and all that. So long, sustained periods of time exposure to noise if you're working in a noisy environment, like those poor people that work at the car wash right by the dryer thing that just makes my ears want to cry, that kind of exposure ruins your hearing permanently. So one, taking care of that, but then if you do start to notice that you have some hearing difficulty and you know, or have folks that are in your environment that use hearing aids, you can simplify their ability to participate in conversation by turning off background noise. You don't want to have the TV on in the background or music playing in the background or even the dishwasher running because it is very, very distracting and it covers up the speech signal that they're trying to listen to, making sure that you have good lighting in a room so they can see your face. And if they're looking at your mouth a little bit to kind of get a feel for what what people are saying. Those are two very simple things that you can do that can make a huge difference in someone's ability to participate in a a conversation. Is there anything else you'd like to add? You know, I would say one of the things that I thought about was, you know, just just be kind to others, right? It it, it is very stressful when you're trying to figure out how to make an environment, right, appropriate for um, your child or for your your spouse or whoever may have sensory processing differences, and so that was one of the things that I was going to say. And and I think I think it's like it's one of those, you know, no judgment zones if you can, um, you know, with with my own child. And this is a story that sometimes when I'm working as an occupational therapist, right, that I'll share with families. My my daughter who had such tactile defensiveness and clothes just were so stressful for her. We finally figured out our family routine was to bathe every night. The child, you know, so she's about four and a half. She's dry overnight. She takes a bath. And instead of putting pajamas on to have a fight in the morning about what clothes hurt in the morning and what clothes don't feel good, we just put her clothes on at night. And she was calm and warm and her sensory system was in a good place after her bath. I mean, she's, she's a, you know four-year-old kid at the time, leggings and t-shirts <laughs> is all she wore. But, right, so the leggings and t-shirt, her brain could habituate to those clothes overnight. And it made our family life so much nicer because our mornings didn't have that intensity and that, you know, that emotional. And so if, if somebody, if, if you know a parent whose child's got some sensory processing differences or disorder going on, give them a little love. And if their kid is wearing weird stuff, just be okay with it. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. Well, and try to get past that idea of what's normal. Yeah. I don't know anyone that's normal, especially after COVID. I mean, it's just messed everything up. But, you know, open, honest conversations, trying to hear whoever you're working with. See that individual in front of you and try and work with them to meet their needs. And if we're not the ones that have the resources, try and help them out find the resources. I mean... We're fortunate to be in a a city that has a really great medical community that has focused so intensely on this collaborative practice thing. Interprofessional 
education and her professional care. Well, there's plenty of people out here. One provider cannot know everything for anyone, more than likely. So it takes a team. And so if, if you see something and it's like, oof, I don't know a whole lot about that. How about we call Cindy Tianka over there? Because I know that she knows a lot about that. So... And Carolyn brings up our, you know, our interprofessional teams and some of the things we do here in our community. I guess one other thing that I'd want to mention is that one of the programs that we do here at the Health Sciences Center is actually because we recognize that you know early development is so important, not only for sensory processing, but for other skills as well. We actually have a toy fair that is for, for children who are receiving earlier intervention services. And one of the ways that we're able to provide that is through donations. And so uh, we if you've known a child who yeah, you've been able to see how their their sensory system or their other systems have really developed because of the way that they were interact, able to interact with toys or books, that might be something that you might be interested in doing is donating to that, that toy fair. Or if you have family members or kids, you know, grandkids that are in, you know, any of the programs at the Health Sciences Center, our students are working together with each other, learning with and from each other about what their disciplines do so that when they go out as nurses and physical therapists and occupational therapists and audiologists and speech-language pathologists, if they see or hear some of these things, they can go, I know exactly who I need to send you to. I need to make a referral because it's about serving our patients and our clients. Where can people donate or find out where to donate to the toy drive? There's actually a website. It's give to ttuhsc.com is a website that you can go to and we can make sure we give you that link. There's a cute little video that some of our students did. If people want to learn more about it, yeah, they can go to that website and do that. And mention the Interprofessional Toy Fair and Expo. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. You're welcome. It's fun. Thank you for for having us us be here. It's been a great time. Thanks for listening to Texas Tech Health Check. Make sure to subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Always seek immediate medical advice from your physician or your healthcare provider for questions regarding your health or medical condition. Texas Tech Health Check is brought to you by Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center and produced by Tierra Castillo, Susanna Cisneros, Mark Hendricks, and me, Melissa Whitfield.